0: From the L.A. Times studios, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian-American celebrity about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian-American. I'm Frank Shaw.
1: And I'm Jen Yamato. This week, it's episode 15 of our podcast, and we are joined by U.S. Senator Kamala Harris. She'll talk about the recent rise in anti-Asian hate and how government leaders should address racism in America.
2: First and foremost... Leaders have to speak truth about the fact that racism is real in America, and it has always been.
0: And just a note, we spoke with Senator Harris just days after George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, before Los Angeles and other cities around the world started seeing a massive wave of protests against racism and police violence.
1: So here is our conversation with the senator.
3: Asian Enough is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Hello Tushy. Did you know it takes 37 gallons of water to make one roll of toilet paper? Make a difference with Hello Tushy Modern Bidet Attachment. This advertiser has no influence over editorial decisions or content.
1: U.S. Senator Kamala Harris is an Oakland-born, Howard-educated lawyer, legislator, former district attorney of San Francisco, and attorney general of California, and 2020 Democratic presidential candidate. She is the daughter of immigrants who met during the civil rights era at Berkeley. Hello, Bay Area. Shout out, Bay Area. And her mother's from India and her father's from Jamaica. So welcome to Asian Enough, Senator.
2: It's great to be with you.
0: So I'm going to take the first question, and we're just kind of going to jump right into it. So in your memoir, you talked about how your mother made conscious choices about raising you and your sister as a Black woman, though with strong and unquestionable connections to Indian culture. How did she do that? Tell us more about that.
2: Well, so, I mean, it's complicated and and probably a lot deeper and more complex than we have time for, but I'll try. Um, You know, she arrived in the U.S. when she was 19 years old. She was the eldest of my grandparents' children. And you know, in Asian cultures, what that means. Yeah. Um, she wanted to become a scientist. She wanted to cure cancer. So she went to her father as the eldest child and said, Appa, I want to go and I want to study in what is considered to be one of the best schools for science. I want to go to UC Berkeley. And my grandfather... Now, this is his eldest daughter, and this is in the late 1950s, said, okay, follow your dreams. He was very progressive. So my mother flew, you know, this is when trans, you know, national flights were really very rare. And she arrived in Berkeley, California alone and um, began her studies. And because my grandfather was really an advocate for India's independence, and he was really a extraordinary Person and really always fighting for a democracy um, and and justice. And so immediately then, of course, my mother was naturally attracted to the civil rights movement that was you know blossoming or occurring in in the bay area and um, and met my father. And so instead of going back to India as had been the plan to have you know what would have been an arranged marriage, she met my father and had a love marriage. And that produced my sister and me. And my mother understood, you know, she was just conscious of race. She understood what these things meant. And she knew that in America, that her daughters would be treated as, for better and for worse, as black women and black children. And she raised us with a sense of pride about who we were, who we are, but never with a false choice, right? It was never to the exclusion of of always also being very proud and very um, active in terms of our Indian culture as well. But she un- she understood what America was at the time and who America is and and the struggles that people face in America. And so that's that's it in a nutshell. You know, but there were never any false choices. You know, we grew up in the Black community and learned, you know, that you can cook okra with mustard seeds or with dried shrimp and, and spicy sausages. <laughs> you <know?
1: laughs> did you learn any of those recipes? Did you, did you keep any of those?
2: You know, my, well, so, I mean, my mother was an extraordinary cook and as was my grandmother, my aunt, my chitti is the, it's the name for your, your mother's younger sister. It basically means younger mother. Um, and she thankfully is still with us. She, um, and she's a great cook. So I'm, Indian cooking is very complicated. It's like a lot of Asian cooking. There are a lot of different spices. And she was such a good cook, and my aunt is such a good cook, so I never really had to learn how to make Indian food, but I have been slowly teaching myself how to do that. Um, but my mother was also, she loved good food, so she would make incredible Italian meals. She would make, you know, I remember us making and and... and and wontons, I remember us making, you know, she loved to make barbecue. I mean, it was just, it was eclectic, but I think it was just, she was a very universal person in many ways. She loved cultures and, and, and she loved to cook.
0: Yeah, she sounds really fascinating. And I want to also ask about your grandma in India. I'm told that she was somewhat of a, an advocate for access to birth control and, and an activist,
2: Well, my grandmother was, so my grandmother had an arranged marriage. She was married at a very young age um, to my grandfather, but then, you know, started living with him when she was older. And um, I don't think she graduated high school. I don't know. But my grandmother was one of the smartest people you have ever met. And she knew everything about politics. She knew about policy. And she was that she was a force a force in the context of our family in the context of her community and she was the person who would take in everything from she would feed the stray dogs to to take you know to fight for women's rights to fight for you know whatever fight against whatever she thought was unfair and um, and this is just who she was she was a protector my grandmother really, when it comes down to it, it was just a protector. She she always protected people that she felt needed to be protected.
1: I'm so curious also, in terms of language, you know, you'd go to visit your family, your extended family in India as a child. And elsewhere, like your grandfather was stationed in, in Zambia, but... In terms of the language, did you take any of that with, with you? Does your family speak Tamil? Well, Do you I speak think Tamil? like a lot
2: of us who maybe, I mean, sadly, I didn't learn, I did not ever become fluent in, in the language. My family's from South India, so th- the language is Tamil, but they also, for most of her life, lived in, in Bombay and in Delhi. So, you know, she speaks Hindi and all and Urdu. But I will tell you that, like, probably many kids, I learned with great acuity words of affection and words of frustration. (laughs) (laughs) Because, of course, that just is about mother tongue, right? The words that you speak to your children that are words about deep love and the words that are about utter frustration just come out in your mother tongue. So I know those words.
0: You can always tell a lot about people by which of their grandmother's language they learn. The only words I know are like, I'm full and uh, I'm hungry. So um, in my grandmother's language. So but I wanted to turn to uh, back to sort of talking about, you know, biraciality and especially as a presidential candidate. You know, it felt like people encourage you or or there's pressure to choose a side you know black or indian american and at one point you were asked directly in an interview at one point to say oh indian american or african american which you know doesn't really jive with my understanding of my biracial friend's identity and and what you said was i'm a proud american in response to this question you know how do you feel about the way our political environment handles biracial identity? And do you feel pressured to pick a side? And does that reflect your life experience?
2: Well, I mean, I have to tell you, Frank, honestly, I I, I don't even think we're that sophisticated yet. I think that first <laughs> you just have to ask, how does America handle race? Much less what it means to be biracial. <laughs> you know? Like, literally, um, and when you're talking about running for office, and you can ask any one of us who was one of the first of our kind to run based on gender or race. And you will know that it can be a challenge because people, they're more comfortable and I guess it's easier to place a candidate in a box that you already have defined and based on your exposure and your your knowledge, right? And your experiences. And so the challenge becomes then when You don't fit in someone's preconceived notion of who is president of the United States because their only reference point is who has been president of the United States and not one of those people looks like you. It presents a challenge, um, which is that, you know, you, you are probably more required more than others that are familiar. You're required to explain things about yourself that otherwise you may not be required to explain. And that that can be challenging um, for a number of reasons, including because, you know, at that moment, you might prefer that the interview was about your plan for the economy. (laughs) But you're trying to help people figure out who you are, even though you're really comfortable in your own skin.
1: (laughs) Well, I think to that point, conversations like these, I think, do help people figure out, you know, as they relate to their own experiences in ways that are not widely talked about so I'm curious along, along those lines, how have you dealt, whether they're coping tools or learned skills or, or sources of strength in your life, how have you dealt with this external interrogation of your identity and how people use it to judge things like electability?
2: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, you know, I was raised with a deep sense of pride. In my cultural background, like I've never really had, and I mean this not as an indictment of anyone, but just speaking about myself um, as much as I don't like to do, but (laughs) I've never had an identity crisis. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, I haven't, I, I haven't. I'm really comfortable in who I am. I grew up in a family and an extended family who was, you know, we like literally I didn't go through some evolution about who am I and what is my identity. And I I guess the frustration I have is if people think that I should have gone through such a crisis and need to explain it, but I didn't. I you know, I grew up in a community where um, and maybe it's because also being from the Bay Area and growing up in the Bay Area and there was such a cultural mix of people um, in the community in which I was raised. There was an understanding and appreciation of, um, for that, that it it just wasn't an issue for me. And But you're right, then being a candidate and going out in the world and, and being a candidate for public office does mean explaining who you are then it requires, I guess, a little bit more explanation to to help people figure it out. But it, it's not as though it was kind of an evolving consciousness for me.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. And And I think, like, from what I understand about biracial identity, you know, it involves a lot of toggling back and forth and choosing between them is like choosing between your mom and dad, which, you know, no son or daughter is really able to do.
3: tush, then this ad is for you. It's hard to believe that when we go to the bathroom in this country, most of us wipe instead of wash. The Hello Tushy Modern Bidet Attachment is here to democratize the blessings bestowed by bidets and offer clean bottoms to everyone. It attaches to your existing toilet, requires no electricity or additional plumbing, and cuts toilet paper use by 80%. So the Hello Tushy Bidet pays for itself in a few months. Because with Hello Tushy, you don't wipe at all. Even the best two-ply just can't cut it when it comes to a hands-free bathroom experience. Join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now and have a clean bottom with every flush. Go to hellotushy.com enough to get 10% off. This is a special offer for our listeners. Go to hellotushy.com enough for 10% off. hellotushy.com enough.
0: I wanted to turn to basically something more current, which is anti-Asian and anti-Black sentiment. You know, recently, there's been a lot of incidents of racism to talk about, a lot of complicated conversations. According to the Stop AAPI Hate Tracker, there have been already 1,700 reported incidents of anti-Asian hate crimes during the pandemic. And at the same time, the Black community is hurting anew with the names of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd... How do you think our government can address this stuff?
2: First and foremost, the leaders have to speak truth about the fact that racism is real in America. And it has always been. And so it may be uncomfortable for people to speak, much less hear, but we can't ever get on the path of healing if we don't speak that truth. And these various incidents, include, you know, hate crime is not new against the AAPI community against black people in America, against LGBTQ people. It's not new. In fact, as Attorney General of California, one of my res- many responsibilities was to publish the hate crimes report on a regular basis. The, the anti-Semitism, this stuff is not new in America. What is, what is tragic is that it's not ending. It's not, and we're, and we're seeing a resurgence and we see it every so often. And so what must the government do? Well, leaders in the government, one need to speak the truth about it. And then there are a number of things that we have to do. Um, it, it is it, certainly when we're talking about hate crime, and I say this perhaps as a former prosecutor who has prosecuted hate crime, there needs to be serious investigation of these cases, meaning that when someone reports it, they must be taken seriously. They must be given dignity through the process. And then there must be serious investigation of these crimes and accountability and consequence. And that point is is more than a notion. Because if someone who is an immigrant, if someone who speaks English with a heavy accent, walks into a police department, it is a legitimate question to ask, will they be taken seriously? Will they be treated with dignity? So these are real issues that have to be confronted in the overall process. That means about training law enforcement. That means about training prosecutors about the significance of hate crime. It means doing the outreach with communities that are reluctant to report it because they believe, one, it is natural. It keeps happening. It happened to their friends. It happened to their cousins. It happened to their aunties and uncles. And it just happens. Two, they may feel that if they report it, nothing will happen. And three, for so many Asian cultures, it's not supposed to be about you. And so people feel that they have to subordinate sometimes what, what has been a personal affront for the sake of the community and what might result in bringing law enforcement and government into the community for the purposes of an investigation. So that has to be about training of law enforcement. It has to be about outreach to communities where communities have the ability to report these things in a way that they will be treated with dignity. There is the work that needs to be done about speaking about America's history on race You know, we know that the the Chinese Americans built, helped build California into what it is, built the railroads, but yet on the books, on the law, we're forbidden to own property. You can look at Japanese internment, we can go on and on down the list, right? And so there's the piece of it that also has to be about education and reminding our country of where we've been recently on a lot of these issues. And so these are some of the things that I think about. And then the, the, the last piece, which is equally important as anything else, we need equal representation among people who are, who are in positions of power so that they will understand, they will reflect the, the diversity of who we are as a country, and they will also speak um, to the issue. But it should not be incumbent on just a, an AAPI elected official to do the work of speaking out against these injustices. Um, but I will tell you guys, I mean, on that point in terms of what's happening in the Senate, what's happening around some of the stuff, you know, um, Congresswoman Meng and I have a resolution that is about denouncing Asian, anti-Asian sentiment, um, caused by the coronavirus. Um, Maisie Hirono, the, the senator from Hawaii and, and, and Tammy Duckworth from Illinois, we have a whole resolution that's condemning Asian crime and, and, and in terms of Asian, anti-Asian hate crime and, and and basically calling on public officials to denounce racism and xenophobia and anti-Asian sentiment. Um, but we also need to push that all leaders speak out against this and that it's just not on the shoulders of those of us who come from these communities to speak about it
1: well that's exactly right and i think for us too you know along that thought comes the idea of interrogating one's own community about racism you know the anti-blackness within the asian american community for example leading to hopefully a more uniform solidarity more unity across communities but We could talk to you for hours about all of this stuff, Um, but we wanted to squeeze in, before we let you go, our Bad Asian Confession segment, in which we share a time or an experience, and Frank and I have shared so many of these, where something had made us feel like a bad Asian. We do this so that we can all unpack it together. It's It's like a group hug. It's like group therapy. We wanted to know, what is one of yours, Senator?
2: Oh, okay. Um... Well, one is I didn't realize that it was more than something my mother did, like, for my entire life, like, up until last year. I didn't realize that it was apparently a thing to put Indian spices in Taster's Choice coffee jars. <laughs> so- We had a whole spice cabinet full because she would drink Taster's Choice coffee, which was you basically spoon it out, put it in a cup and pour hot water in it. And she would have that every morning. Literally, don't talk to mommy until she's had her coffee. And it was Taster's Choice coffee. Well, if you looked in the spice cabinet, like big things of turmeric, big things of cumin, big things of mustard seed, all in, in Taster's Choice containers, these glass containers with this twist top. And then I was with um, a pretty, a very well-known actor and comedian, and we were cooking together. We were making um, dosa together. And she then pulls out the spices, and they were all in Taster's Choice containers. And she and I had the biggest laugh because she didn't know either that this is apparently a thing among... I guess the in her parents, her her father and my mother were pretty much the same generation. That's one. I guess the other one, it's a very, I've never confessed this, but we would always um, challenge members of my, so (laughs) Indians cannot pronounce W very well. and we would sometimes challenge, like, my grandmother to pronounce W. <laughs> That's awful. And I'm sure we're the only bad kids who did that. But
1: <laughs> I am so sure you are not the only kids that. I am so embarrassed
2: that. that I just said that. I've never said that out loud. <laughs> oh, this is like a tribute
1: to grandparents, though, isn't it?
2: Yeah. All these wonderful I mean, memories. Well, Oh, my God. I mean, you know, listen, it's um I mean, it's in all cultures, but I, I will speak of what I know. And I mean, the importance of children and nurturing children, you know, and being, you know, I wrote a book just after my mother passed away. I've written two books now, but the one I wrote back when she passed away and I dedicated it to her and I said, I've never known anyone who is tougher, smarter, and more loving than my mother. And, you know, all of those things exist in one person and, and to a certain extent, it, it was cultural, it was just who she was.
0: No, it's it's always a risk when we're, we're learning our culture primarily through our parents and then they leave some stuff out, you know, <laughs> and then we're kind of made to look a, a little silly sometimes. I used to think everything that was Chinese was Taiwanese because my mom's Taiwanese and she claimed that all of Chinese culture was Taiwanese culture. So I grew up with that nice blind spot. Um, we can't let you go without asking the question on everyone's mind, which is if given the offer, you know, do you want to be Joe Biden's vice president?
2: If I was asked, of course, I'd be honored to be asked and, and, and would say yes. But um, I will tell you that the really the most important thing is that he wins. I, I cannot stress that enough. And listen, when we are talking about the AAPI community, it is the fastest growing, I believe, community in the country in, in terms of ethnic groups. And there is so much at stake in this election. When you talk about everything from how are we how seriously are we taking hate crimes and do we have an attorney general of the United States who takes these kinds of things seriously? In Bill Barr, Trump's attorney general, we have, and before that under Jeff Sessions, who was the first attorney general under Donald Trump, they are no longer really enforcing consent decrees where courts have found um, that there, there needs to be reform because of discrimination and excessive force. They're no longer engaging in significant pattern and in practice investigations of discrimination by police departments. Um, you can look at it in terms of what's happening with immigration. My God. Where, and by the way, it is everyone. It is, it is our Latino brothers and sisters. It is our Asian brothers and sisters. It is people arriving from the African continent, from the Caribbean, who are child separation policies how immoral can that be um a president of the united states who call is calling it the wuhan virus which is what has precipitated the kind of hate crimes we're seeing in particular against chinese americans or those perceived to be chinese americans um we can look at what's at 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 risk in terms of the 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 whether we're going to have a country with a leader who is spending full time trying to sow hate and division or a leader who's trying to unify and build our country. So all of that is at stake. And and this is, it, it is it is not even subtle. It is very real, it is very apparent. This stuff is banging on our door in terms of the issues that we can actually impact when and if we vote. And so I just want to stress to everyone, you must vote and do not be afraid and make sure that our voices are counted. Make sure that you are counted in the census, in the 2020 census. But there's so much at stake for all communities and in particular for 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 communities who have often been overlooked, have been dismissed or ignored or marginalized.
3: Did you know manufacturing toilet paper uses nearly 27,000 trees per day? Ouch. Literally, for the planet and your butt. It's time for the Hello Tushy Modern Bidet Attachment. Hello Tushy cleans your bottom with a precise stream of fresh water for just $79. It attaches to your existing toilet, requires no electricity or additional plumbing, and cuts toilet paper use by 80%. So the Hello Tushy Bidet pays for itself in a few months. And every Hello Tushy bidet attachment comes with a 60-day risk-free guarantee and a 12-month warranty. Join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now and start eliminating waste responsibly. Go to hellotushy.com enough to get 10% off. This is a special offer for our listeners. Go to hellotushy.com enough for 10% off. hellotushy.com enough.
0: Do you happen to have a bad Asian confession you want to share with us? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. Maybe we'll even play it on the show. In fact, here's one of our listeners sharing their own.
4: My name is Alyssa. I grew up and currently am at home in Marietta, Georgia, which is in the suburbs of Atlanta. You know, mostly white community, not many Asian places here. Uh, and my bad Asian confession is that I didn't know how to properly use chopsticks for the first decade of my life. So I grew up using chopsticks with almost every meal, uh, but didn't realize until like late middle school, uh, that I'd been using them incorrectly. Uh, and so one day I brought my lunch to school for the first time and it was in this middle school cafeteria that I whipped out these chopsticks and one of my friends, my white friend said to me, you're not using those correctly, like they're not supposed to cross in the middle when you use them. And I didn't initially believe her, uh, but when I later secretly Googled it online, I realized she was right. And in that moment, felt so embarrassed. (laughs) And from then on, didn't bring lunch to school for the rest of the year uh, and would practice using chopsticks at home and would pick up things like peas and edamame until I finally got it right. And I I think I felt so embarrassed uh, because at the time I had a very narrow understanding of what being Asian meant and it didn't really feel as much of an identity as just like the language I spoke the way I looked, the food I ate, and feeling different um, from the people around me. And I think to have that come into question and to feel like I didn't fit into this, I didn't even fit into this narrow mold of this label that I didn't really want felt uncomfortable and and really embarrassing. But I think now understanding that there is a broad range of experiences and backgrounds that can fall within the, or under the umbrella of being Asian and Asian-American and also having a greater appreciation and pride in my Asian-American identity. I look back and and it still feels like a a bit of an embarrassing
1: moment, but mostly just a really funny uh, memory. And that's it for episode 15 of our podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Jen Yamato, and Frank Shong. Our senior producer is Rena Palta. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of Lina Anwar.
0: Come back next week for another great guest. If you like Asian enough, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple.
1: Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, Reed Johnson, Shelby Grad, and Clint Schaff.
0: We hope you're enjoying this podcast, created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support L.A. Times to subscribe.
1: And remember, when it comes to identity, you don't have to choose sides. You can
2: cook okra with mustard seeds or with dried shrimp and, and spicy sausages. <laughs> <You know?
0: laughs>